NASCAR is coming to the streets of Chicago. The fans of, of NASCAR, I don't have to tell you, are broad and wide and deep. And the opportunity to really, I think, ignite um, our tourism with a new iconic event um, on the calendar was uh, a no-miss opportunity. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, about local housing news. It does look as if that, that land rush has slowed down. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, July 21st. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours, too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. Hi there, and welcome to Crane's Daily Just Live, brought to you by Wintrust. This is the live version of the daily podcast. I'm your host, Amy Guth, and I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Welcome back, Dennis. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I really want to get into this Winnetka Beach thing, because as we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, like that is... That's my real estate soap opera right now. There are many, but that's one of them. <laughs> yeah. um, but before we do that, I always say you do the math so we don't have to. And I understand you have some data for us. We do. Um, Illinois Realtors on Wednesday reported June data. And um, one of the things that I think is most noteworthy is, as you and I have discussed uh, for several months running, home prices in the city, the median price of homes sold in the city was flat for eight of the past 10 months and for all of the past five months. Um, prices compared to the uh, same month a year before simply were not changing, and, and that was a little troublesome. Well, it changed. In June, the median price of homes sold in the city of Chicago was up 4.7%, so that indicates that, you know, that, that flatness is not going to continue. Pretty sure that what it has to do with is very, very tight inventory. People are having to pay more because uh, very tight inventory and interest rates going up. So people are trying to, you know, lock in my next home purchase before uh, interest rates go any higher. And because inventory is so low, I have to bid up anyway. So prices started to rise in Chicago in June for the first time after a string of five months when they hadn't budged. And do you feel like that's a kind of a tell in, in any direction to you? So prices were up in the city 4.7%. Metro-wide, nine-county metropolitan areas with the Illinois Realtors Report, home price, the median price of homes sold was up 6.6%. That's the biggest in several months. Um, it, it hadn't been flat in the metro area, so it wasn't quite as concerning. It was up in the 5% range and now was up 66 and nationwide, home prices were up in June 13.4%. One thing that almost anybody could guess, but we should make sure we drop in here, is these are increases on top of the 2021 increases. And, uh, well, we're talking June, so it's also on top of the 2020 increases. Um, this is Home prices are really rising, are, are continuing to rise on top of what happened during the the. Uh, height of the boom. The median price of homes sold nationwide was the highest ever, 
according to the National Association of Home, uh, National Association of Realtors, which released the the national data. Um, we're not at that point, but uh, it, it it continues. The the boom continues. I did say you and I discussed last month when the data came out that the number of sales has dropped below not only the boom year 2021, but below the average of the years prior to the boom, the last ordinary years, the before times years. Um, in May, that was the first time we saw sales drop below that point uh, region-wide. In June, this newest data we have, same thing. So that, that's metro-wide. So it does look as if that, that land rush has slowed down. We've we've expected the numbers to be below, and they have been below the 2021 figures. But the fact that they're below, I use 2015 to 2019 as a normal time because 2020 was just completely nuts uh, because that was when the pandemic kicked in. And so for two months running now, we've we've seen seen sales below that five-year average. I don't have that figure for the nation, um, but what I just said was for the region. In the city, it's not yet true. In the city, still seeing sales well above the average for those before times years. Um, So uh, we're going to have to watch that for the next few months and see which of those two prevails. Okay, now let's go to Winnetka because there's new stuff in the soap opera that was happening there. So refresh people's memory if they perhaps missed an earlier episode uh, when we talked about... Can we get some organ music so we can really sort of update? I know, the- I was going to say, it's such a it's such a saga with so many steps, but bring us up to speed for those who may have forgotten. Okay, so there's a, a row of properties, lakefront properties in Winnetka, um, five properties in a row, uh, Several, three owned by, a, a bought in 2020 by a billionaire, Justin Ishbia, a, a head private equity executive, um, and two owned by the Winnetka Park District. But it's not in a row like that. The first two are Ishbia's, then a park, then a, an Ishbia property, then a park. So there was a land swap deal arranged so that he would have three in a row, they'd have park. Um, he wasn't going to get a whole park, but it was it was a strip of one. Uh, and that came out with his third purchase, the purchase of that that property, that residential property that is between the Elder Lane and Centennial Parks. The idea was Winnetka would have one contiguous park and create a nice big new beach like what we're what we've seen done in Lake Bluff, Lake Forest, Highland Park, and another part of Winnetka and Wilmette, big new beach with uh, breakwaters that protect from erosion and things like that. And then a wrench got thrown into the works. It turned out that it wasn't just simply a land swap. There was sort of a second deal uh, in which Ishbia and the city of the village of Winnetka would be essentially having to work together on developing that beach um, because some of the breakwater would be on his over the property line on the water below his property. Um, And he was calling for originally, he was calling for sort of a privacy screen made of louvers. It had a lot of different phrase. People called it louvers, safety rails, Um, but it was a metal screen, essentially, that would have blocked view from the public beach to his. He dropped that. We reported uh, that he dropped that uh, request in June, still was asking for landscaping. What he he told me emphatically multiple times, uh, including in the interview we're about to get to, 
is that he wants some something that signifies that's public beach. This is my property. Uh, and so what he's at, what he was asking for was landscaping. So that was where uh, last week was going to end. But then on Friday, uh, he submitted some new plans for his residential project on, on the two properties he had bought. That indicated he had bought yet another mansion on Winnetka's Lakefront. He confirmed it for me. Um, he, the house you see on the screen is a property that he paid $16 million for in early July. So he now, he now has um, nearly $40 million in lakefront properties in Winnetka. The three he bought previously came to 23.9. You add this one at 16, and he's at $39.9 million. Um, so with this new purchase, with this one on the south, Though that park situation is on the north of his property, he doesn't need the park district anymore. He's now got three properties contiguous on Sheridan Road and then a park, and then he's got a fourth property. And so what he told me is, I can just go ahead. I'll go ahead. He, he has not specified. I've asked many times. He hasn't said whether he's building a 2,000 or 40,000 square foot house. I know nothing about the house he wants to propose on the site but he's got three acres and he spent uh, <laughs> nearly $40 million on land. You can bet it's going to be a big house. Um, so he has said he doesn't really need to work with the park district anymore. He would like to. He said very clearly, I would still like to make this deal with the park district, but he's got, he can go another way. And what he told me is that one property that is landlocked between the two parks, I said, well, you know, now you've got three park and a house and another park, would you sell that house in between to another party, to the park district? He said, no, I have relatives who will happily live there seasonally. So he would have his estate and then a park, and then uh, would there would be essentially his guest house. Similarly, the park district has said, okay, you know, we can move forward without him. They were planning to build a very large park that combined uh, parcels, but if they can't get the p property in between, they said, they can just go ahead and, and redo the beaches of those two parks that, that flank that one house. And so that's where it stands as of now. Justin Ishbia has uh, <laughs> $39.9 million worth of property on Winnetka's Lakefront. One little piece of it is between parks. And um, we're going to see where the two parties go. I'm working on another story. You'll probably ask me at the end of the podcast. You always ask me at the end of the podcast, what are you working on? I'm working on another story, the next episode of this soap opera, because we're looking at how did this deal get made in the first place? I too have that question. Yes. And who is Justin Ishbia? What, what's his background? So we'll have that out again. But as of now, the news is... Uh, he's got the, his latest purchase is at $16 million. I mean, you kind of can't blame him, right? Because it was looking when we last talked about it, like this was just not going to go forward. I mean, it just seemed like it was just so complicated by the beach and the walls and the landscape and all of these issues and him having kind of a land, parkland, then more land. It just seemed like it was just kind of deadlocked. And uh, you can't blame the guy for saying, you know what? I'm just going to turn my attention over here. We'll figure this out later. I got to build my house. Yes, but tune in tomorrow for the next episode because we don't know that that's where it's going. That's that true. looks like where it's that's going. That's true. 
but like any good soap opera writer, um, we may see some, we, there may be some more twists. Dun, dun, dun. Um, it does look as if he's now able, I, I don't have any idea what those twists will be. Right. Um, I'm not writing this soap opera. I'm just covering it. But <laughs> I'm just here watching. Yeah. Exactly. He's got enough land and clearly enough money um, that he has at the moment, it appears that he has outmaneuvered the park district, but we don't know. We don't know what will happen. I, once again, I don't have any suspicions or anything like that. Everybody appears to be operating above board. So there's not going to be some secret, you know, there's not like a secret twin or a secret child or any of those soap opera devices. Other soap opera things. Yeah. But uh, I mean, he was right up front when I said, so you bought this 16 million? He said, yes. Yep. So, you know, um, and the park district has also been right up front. But uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of money and 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 a public trust. The lakefront in Chicago and the North Shore really is a very valuable public um, amenity. So there's a lot riding on this, and that means there might be more episodes. Excellent. I like a good cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> I did what I could. Uh, all the all the real estate drama right here. Exactly. You know what? Actually, let's go back to real estate data and numbers and home buying okay. a little bit because I want to go back to a story that, that you also wrote about how some skittish buyers are canceling home purchases. Yeah, this is some data that we got last week. People are canceling home purchase contracts in larger numbers than they had been earlier. In June, in the Chicago area, 16.7% of uh, contracts to buy houses were canceled. In the previous five months, it had been running in the 13 to 14.1%. So that's a big jump from 13, 14 up to 16.7, nearly 17%. Similar jump nationwide. So interest rates have been rising, as we've discussed. And there are clouds of a recession gathering. Maybe we're going into recession. Maybe other uh, dark times are ahead. Don't know. So it appears that there's, a, there's enough pessimism that people are saying, well, maybe I won't buy that house. Now, the agents I spoke to said they didn't think it, was, it had as much to do with uh, interest rates as it, did, as it did just with the idea that maybe this isn't the time. Maybe I need to be more careful. Maybe at one agent told me, maybe I was rushed into the, I felt rushed into the purchase because everybody was bidding. I needed to get that house. I've been sort of priced out of other ones. I need to grab this one. And in the light of day later, I decided, oh, I think I overbid on that one. Maybe we should back out. One of the agents told me that, um, uh, very small inspection issues have been triggering cancellations, the sort of issues that when you get your inspection, most buyers say, oh, yeah, well, that's not great, but we still want the house. Um, he said they're getting much, much pickier and small inspection issues have had them say, OK, I don't want to do it, which would sort of indicate that they were a little nervous anyway. Did we overbid? Is this too much? Uh, should we really do this? And then you get a little bit of information that sort of tilts you toward, yeah, no, we should not do this. Um, so that, that too is something we need to watch in the near future. 16.7% cancellations is not the highest it's ever been. It's not a record. It's not a sign of anything horrible. It's just that it had been running at 13 to 14, and then it jumps to nearly 17. So you start to wonder, will this be a trend? What kind of range are we normally looking at? Maybe pre-pandemic, what was that cancellation rate? Well, unfortunately, they pulled for me, the, uh, uh, Redfin had published data for the 
the nation that went back several years. So I got them to pull it for me specifically for Chicago. And there's not really a pattern. We've been up, we've been down. There are times in the winter when it's over 20%. There are times when it's 10%. So there wasn't really a pattern prior to 2020, really late 2021, where it starts running at about 13%. So it's really that it diverged from its most recent pattern um, because there's not a pattern to diverge from in the past. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, we'll have to keep an eye on that one too. All right, let's get into some houses. Let's start with the former Caterpillar chairman who is selling his Michigan Avenue condo. So this is on the 54th floor of the Bloomingdale's building. Don Fites was the uh, chairman of Caterpillar in the 1990s when it was still in uh, Peoria, not in Chicago. It moved to Chicago in the in the 21st century. And what he told me is he's he's retiring from Caterpillar in 1998-99, and it's been a tough period. He uh, There was a strike for several years, management reorganization, things like that. He just wanted a place to relax. He was not from Chicago. Uh, so he bought this condo in, in, Chica- in Chicago as a place to enjoy um, the culture, the lake, the Chicago Cubs. He's a fan. Uh, and now, more than two decades later, is spending most of his time in Florida, and so is ready to sell this. This was a part-time home anyway. But one of the things I love, you know I'm a huge fan of Lake Michigan. I mean, it's hard to live in Chicago and not be a huge fan of Lake Michigan, but I started today, this morning, swimming in the lake. It's summer. I love it. He's got a view of the lake, but he also, the he's on the 54th floor. He's not going to dive into the water from there, but you're sort of surrounded by the water. Look at these reflective ceilings. I love this. People do this at times in downtown condos, and it's such a nice finish because um, he, so the lake is, is a few blocks away, but you really sort of pull that view in with those reflective ceilings. And you also, I think we have some nighttime shots too, you pull in the view, uh, the, the skyline lights so that you might be sitting on this couch with the skyline, not only outside your windows, but all above your head, which I think is just a really kind of a fun um, way to make use of, to make the ceiling something other than a ceiling. Um, he really enjoyed his time here, he said, but uh, during the pandemic, they have barely been here at all. They live primarily in Florida, and they did a lot of the, they did a whole round of rehab of the um, kitchen and baths and some other finishes right before the pandemic, which turns out to be fortuitous. Again, he bought it in 1999, so you've had it about 20 years. You do some upgrades. Look at this nice kitchen. You do it in 2019, and then the pandemic comes in when you really can't get trades very trade trades people very easily into your property and then after that we have the um, supply chain problems so this is essentially like it turned out to be kind of his last chance to really do this rehab and because of the pandemic and living in Florida he's barely used it since so even though it's coming on the market in 2022 it's sort of a brand new kitchen brand new baths but again look at this view those um, window seats kill me. I mean, imagine you're sitting up there, 54 stories. His windows or his views include the playpen, Ohio Street Beach, much of Oak Street Beach and, and North. I mean, again, I, I love Lake Michigan and swim in it. But if you just want to look at it, this is a great vantage point. Or you want to look at it and find out whether it's swimmable. This is a good vantage point. And I really like the use of, of very neutral tones in the house because your eye goes right to the lake. 
in, in all of these yeah. windows. And that reflective ceiling is really interesting because not only does it draw the outside in both day and night, but it also makes the room feel so much bigger. It feels like a big, big high ceiling, which is a very cool thing. So uh, everybody head to chicagobusiness.com and you can see these photos for yourself. Uh, and it's a real, yeah, again, the neutrals, but it's not, it's neutral, but it's not stark. But it's not stark. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Touches of color. Neutral, but not stark. I'm going to use that in a story soon and, and attribute it to you. Please do. Oh, and I don't think we said the asking price for this is 2.1 million. Okay, very good. All right. So let's go to another house. We got two more to talk about. Let's talk about one in Olympia Fields. This is a, has an architectural pedigree attached to it. It does. And you know how I love those. Uh, this is a Keck, house, a Keck and Keck house built in 1954 in Olympia Fields. Keck and Keck were, are among the most distinguished mid-century modern architects in the Chicago area, not only for the aesthetics of the houses they did, but for the, the technological side. They were big on, among other things, passive solar. This house is a good example. Lots of windows along the south, big floor-to-ceiling windows along the south, and, and sort of essentially blank on the north side, beautifully trimmed with cedar, but there aren't many windows. The idea being that this was before air conditioning time. When the sun is low in the winter, it's going to come right in those windows and warm your house. And in the summer, there are eaves, you can see here, eaves that hang over that keep the much higher sun from coming into your house. Uh, and so you keep the house cool in summer, warm in winter. The sellers who've had this house since the 1990s, again, built in 1954, said that for several, on the coldest days of winter, they don't need the furnace because the sun warms the house. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah, it's really cool. It's um, every time you see one of these houses that you, you sort of want to say thank you to the Kecks for having this idea, but why didn't we keep doing it? One of the reasons we didn't keep doing it is that we got air conditioning. Um, they have put air conditioning into this house, but in this photo, you can see, I think we've, can you stay on this photo for a minute, Rob? In this photo, you can see between the big, uh, window, the big picture frame, um, the big plate glass windows, what look like shutters are actually operable louvers. So in the 50s, we start getting these giant sheets of glass for our windows, floor to ceiling. They're fixed in place. They don't slide up like the double hung windows we're used to. So how are we going to get um, ventilation into the house? Well, those louvers operate so that you can open the, the louvers on the sides of the windows. The breeze comes through. Again, at the time, we don't yet have air conditioning. Um, and so you get a nice breeze, Pat. you get cross-ventilation breeze passing through the rooms while you also get the big advance of the day, the, the plate glass windows, the big sheet glass windows. This is just a wonderful, a great device. I wish we were still using it. And at this house, you can because uh, all of that is still in place. As I said, they did add air conditioning. But if you wanted to go natural, if you wanted to cut down your resource use, you can cool the house much of the day with those louvers and the fact that the eaves hang over. Um, I don't know whether you would, you know, this week we've got these 90 degree temperatures. Uh, I think back then you probably would have been sitting with ice pressed to your forehead. And now you'd um, probably use the air conditioning, but on cooler summer days, this is just a wonderful feeling. I mean, I know there's a lot of experimentation with more you know, sustainable architecture and things like that, but I do wonder 
if that might be ahead of people kind of leaning on some of these tried and true methods that were used pre-air conditioning, not necessarily to replace air conditioning, but maybe just take the edge off a little bit, allow people some days without using an HVAC system. We have some great architects in Chicago trying to move that sort of thing for it also nationwide. But there are architects in Chicago who are really trying for that. And I think the, the primary thing we really need is demand for that. We need consumers. We need people who are building houses, rehabbing houses, buying new houses to say, I want that rather than to say, how big an air conditioner can you get me? Sure. You know? sure. And, and the demand would really pull it through. The architects and the builders are trying, but without a market for it, you know, it tends to be a luxury item. Yeah, certainly. All right. Well, again, head to chicagobusiness.com and you can see photos of this house. And let's go to one other. Um, I can't say we've ever said this phrase on the podcast, even though there have been many phrases we've said I didn't think we we're going to say. And that is uh, the the Lake Forest home of uh, retired Apollo astronaut Jim Houston. We have a problem level. Uh, that house is for sale. Yeah. Jim Lovell, many people know, was uh, a very distinguished astronaut. He was portrayed in uh, the Apollo 13 movie by Tom Hanks. He's the one who, when the mission had to be aborted, essentially piloted the the um, Apollo back to Earth unexpectedly. He flew between, uh, what is it, 1962 and 1970, he flew two Gemini missions, which were preparatory for Apollo. They were orbiting the Earth. And then he flew two Apollo missions commanding Apollo 13, um, which went to the moon. He never walked on the moon. Apollo 13 was supposed to put people on the moon, um, but didn't because it was aborted. Uh, So that's 1970 uh, is his last Apollo mission. He later retires from NASA, becomes an executive in the 1980s, moves to Lake Forest with his wife, Marilyn, and because he was a he was an executive in a telecommunications firm, Centel. So he they moved to Lake Forest, and we can talk a little bit about their background with Lake Forest, which is delightful. I learned it from their daughter. Lived in one house, and then in 1999, bought this house. The kids were all grown. They were in their 60s. Bought this house on Lake Road, which, as some people know, is like the Lake Forest of Lake Forest. It's the nicest houses right next, right near the water, right near the incredibly wonderful Lake Forest Beach, walkable to downtown Lake Forest. Really a great location, and they've lived there since 1999. Um, they're now older and downsizing and selling it. One of the rooms that I love, so I spoke to uh, Susan Lovell, one of their daughters, who is sort of leading the sale of the house, taking car, and she talked to me about this space. Let's stay here for a minute, Rob. She actually, so remember, James Lovell went into space four times. I, very few people could say that. And what she said completely spontaneously is this was my father's favorite space, which I thought was perfect. The guy has gone into space and this is where he liked to stay. If you look closely at this picture, you can see uh, a globe of the moon, which an astronaut would want to have in his office. There are a lot of his medals. There are all sorts of awards behind that desk, not visible in this photo, are books about space flight, Air flight. He, all the astronauts of his era were pilots first. Um, books about NASA. So this is where a man who went into space four times spent a lot of his own time. Um, all those things I mentioned—the moon, etc. Those those aren't sold with the house. But if, but I just think this room has a resonance than a lot of rooms 
simply don't have. You know, I mean, when you list a house, you don't off if you have a a moon in one of the rooms, it isn't because you went there and orbited it. Um, so they're selling the house. Uh, they're uh, they're asking just under three million dollars. In 1999, they bought it for 2.5 million dollars. Uh, it's on almost an acre. It's as I said on Lake Road. It's a very nice house. And um, so again, they all their kids were already grown. It's a big house. Their daughter told me the idea was, you know, our kids, our grandkids can all gather at this house. And they did. Yeah. I mean, you know what I always say about little study office rooms with wood paneling that you would be 10% smarter just by working in there. But then add in two factors. Number one, that there's lots of greenery right outside those windows that kind of wrap around. It looks like on three sides. And also knowing, oh, a person who went to space four times and had a moon globe did his thinking in this room too. I feel like the the percentage that, that your smartness is going to ratchet up is just quite high at that point. I think you're right. I think you're right. That's that's totally true. Indeed. All right. Well. And besides, nice house. I mean, look at this. It's it's very attractive. Yeah, and you we really there's a, it seems like there's a lot of greenery around it, so a lot of windows. So you're really kind of drawing in the outside, and it feels it looks kind of cozy in there. There is. When you're on that part of Lake Road where they live, um, mature trees, beautiful, really much more of a wooded neighborhood. Really, a lot of East Lake Forest is that way. But this is this is what they call um, very East Lake Forest. This is what people call VELF, very East Lake Forest. This is on the block that is next to the water. And like I said, it's the Lake Forest of Lake Forest. Yeah. But that's your vocabulary term for today. I learned that from architects and landscape designers in the 1990s, VELF. VELF. Very East Lake Forest. I really thought that that neighborhood that, or the part of Lincoln Park that you called Whoa Baby was maybe your greatest, oh. <laughs> the greatest thing I've learned from you. But I think that VELF is up there too. <laughs> well, Whoa Baby, don't forget, that came from a reader when I asked, oh. what would you call this neighborhood? And VELF came from, neither of these have I made up, though I'm happy <laughs> to scatter them to people. To put them forth, indeed. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, you've already mentioned one story that's coming up next week, but what else is in the week ahead? Uh, well, one of the things we'll get is the Case-Shiller data, which is another way to track how we, how our market compares to other big cities. And that, and I think that's getting important because, uh, well, for instance, when we talked about the cancellation rate of um, mortgages, so 16.7% here, over 20%, I think 24% in Phoenix, Tampa, Las Vegas. Every time you and I talk about uh, the Case-Shiller data, we talk about, yeah, prices are up over 30% in those places when they've been up, you know, like 8% here. Um, People are a lot more skittish in places like that. There are a lot of contracts being canceled. So we'll have another comparison to other major metro markets via Case-Shiller. Sounds good. All right. Thanks so much, Dennis. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, hashtag boycott Walgreens. Again, trends on Twitter. Customers of the Deerfield-based pharmacy chain are calling for a boycott after a Wisconsin Walgreens worker reportedly refused to sell condoms to a couple, citing religious beliefs. We'll talk about that and more right after this.
Crane's Chicago business invites chief and senior financial officers to attend our CFO breakfast on July 28th. The event will feature Richard Tobin, president and chief executive officer of Dover Corporation. He will speak on how his past experience as a CFO benefits his role as a CEO, sharing insights about his journey to the top and what it takes for a CFO to make that leap. To learn more and find out how to attend, visit chicagobusiness.com events. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. NASCAR racing is coming to the streets of Chicago. Mayor Lori Lightfoot and tourism officials say the National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing will hold three years of summer car racing events in Chicago beginning next year. Um, when we started talking about this opportunity a year ago, um, the excitement among all of us, and particularly me, about the possibilities, um, which is off the charts. This is a huge, huge sports town. I think that goes without saying. And the opportunity to bring something so unique as NASCAR to the city of Chicago, uh, and I think it's going to be one of the most iconic race courses maybe ever. Crane's Corley J reported that the race, including what the mayor's office said is the first ever NASCAR Cup Series street course race, will take place July 1st and 2nd of 2023. And that the 12-turn, 2.2-mile course will include Lakeshore Drive with a start and finish lines on South Columbus Drive in front of Buckingham Fountain. The races will be broadcast on NBC TV, and the Chicago Tribune reported that NASCAR will pay rental fees to the Chicago Park District for using Grant Park. Mayor Lightfoot said, quote, this will introduce a whole new fan base to what NASCAR is, adding that she believes it will spark tourism in the city and saying the economic impact for Chicago will be on par with Lollapalooza, which last year meant about $305 million to Chicago's economy. It's exciting. I think uh, Mayor Lightfoot said earlier, being in this city, uh, bringing NASCAR to this demographic, you know, we talk about how representation matters. And I think exposing this sport to this area downtown with so much to do around while the race is going on is is super important so you're going to get that next Bubba Wallace that's sitting in the stands like I was mm. when I was nine years old to be like hey I want to do this one day but I want to be better and I'm going to tell him good luck. Jay noted in her reporting that Soldier Field was the site of NASCAR racing in the 1950s and the Chicagoland Speedway in Joliet has been on the NASCAR racing circuit in recent years. First Midwest customers were greeted more than a week ago with the news that their bank is now called Old National. But as Crane's Steve Daniels reported, many of them were also greeted with debit cards that couldn't be activated, hours-long holding times on the phone, and equally long waiting times to see someone at a branch with lines out the door. According to Daniels' reporting, the conversion of First Midwest Systems to that of Evansville, Indiana-based Old National has been unusually rocky by most accounts and has led to widespread frustration aired over social media. Old National said that many of the problems stemmed from a vendor's issue. A spokesperson told Cranes that their debit card provider experienced issues with their activation system and call volume capacity. Daniels noted in his reporting that Old National's acquisition of First Midwest was a bit of a mystery when it was unveiled a little over a year ago. Neither bank has much of a presence in each other's markets, so the combination didn't really seem to help either one. The deal was pitched as a merger of equals as First Midwest shareholders were paid a relatively low premium for their shares. Since then, Old National stock has performed poorly and lags behind its peers, and as Daniels also pointed out in reporting, the merger of equals today looks more like a full-blown 
acquisition. The first Midwest name, well-known particularly throughout the South Suburbs, is gone. And the troubles with the conversion are reminding first Midwest customers, and not necessarily in a good way, that they're now with a different bank. Snafus with bank system conversions aren't unheard of, but few are at this level of chaos and for this long, Daniels noted, adding that missteps like this potentially open the door for other banks to pick up business they otherwise wouldn't have gotten. About a year after opening a massive distribution center in Little Village, Target is expanding even further in the Chicago area, with plans for new warehouses near Midway and in Elmhurst. Crane's Albie Galoon reported that in the bigger deal, the retailer has signed a lease for a more than 306,000-square-foot industrial building on South Merrimack, about a mile from Midway. That according to a report from brokerage Colliers International. Target's also leased a nearly 257,000-square-foot warehouse under construction on West Lake in Elmhurst, also citing the report. Last year, Target opened up a 1 million square foot distribution center in Little Village, hiring about 2,000 people to work there. And it was a controversial project, with community activists raising concerns about pollution from trucks driving to and from the warehouse. And the developer of the building, Hillco Redevelopment Partners, drew the ire of Little Village residents and city officials after the botched demolition of a shuttered power plant on the site that sent plumes of dust and debris over the neighborhood. As Galoon also noted in his reporting, Target is expanding locally amid a warehouse boom fueled partly by big retailers and logistics companies retooling their supply chains for the e-commerce era. Many want smaller so-called last-mile distribution centers close to consumers in big cities so that they can deliver products to consumers even faster. And no one has expanded here more aggressively than Amazon, which has leased more than 30 million square feet of warehouse space in the Chicago area. But Amazon started to pull back earlier this year amid slowing sales. Meanwhile, Target is still in expansion mode. Galoon reported that it's unclear how many people the company plans to hire at its two new warehouses, but noted that in addition to the Little Village Distribution Center, Target also operates a 1.5 million square foot warehouse in DeKalb and one totaling 1.2 million square feet in Joliet. Walgreens is facing widespread calls for a boycott on social media for at least the second time this year, after a worker in Wisconsin allegedly cited religious beliefs when he refused to sell condoms to a customer. Crane's Ali Marathi reported that Twitter user Nate Pence, different spelling on the last name than the former vice president, tweeted to his followers earlier this month that he and his partner, Jess Pence, had stopped at a Walgreens in Hayward in northern Wisconsin to buy condoms. At checkout, the cashier told Jess he wouldn't sell them to her because of his religious beliefs. And that led to the hashtag Boycott Walgreens trending on Twitter. Walgreens said in a statement, quote, Instances like this are very rare, and our policies are designed to ensure we meet the needs of our patients and customers while respecting the religious and moral beliefs of our team members. The statement continued, we We require the employee to refer the transaction to another employee or manager on duty who will complete the customer's transaction. And according to Walgreens, the couple's transaction was eventually completed at the Wisconsin location. Marathi also noted in her reporting that experts have said that boycotts are typically more effective at galvanizing public opinion than they are at hitting a company's bottom line. But nevertheless, experts say that such movements can threaten a company's reputation and shouldn't be taken lightly. She also said in her reporting that when the hashtag Boycott Walgreens was trending on Twitter earlier this week, users said they would take their prescriptions and business elsewhere. As mentioned, that same hashtag trended in February also, 
After Walgreens restarted political donations to the Republican lawmakers who objected to Joe Biden's certification as president, Walgreens had paused political donations in early 2021, along with many other companies following the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. That's Crane's Daily Just for Now. Coming up in the next episode, I'll talk with Crane's healthcare reporter, Catherine Davis, about the worker shortage in nursing and how some hospitals are hoping to address the issue. In the meantime, please check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.